Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World What if everything you knew about reality is about to be transformed? Join Dr. Jude Curvin, cosmologist, planetary healer, and author for this open-heart conversation that explores a scientific revolution to show how we are all interconnected and interdependent. This program is hosted by myself, Reverend Heather Shea, and Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. Now, you are a scientist. How do you express spirituality? What does, what does spirituality mean to you? Well, I felt spiritual long before I was a scientist. I had my first spiritual experience when I was four years old. Mm. And I started at that point to literally remember that this physical realm is just one of many. And I started to remember that all we call reality is ultimately one. And that that oneness is differentiated into many worlds and and differentiated into the appearance of, of our universe. But for me, the spirituality came before and continues very much foundationally to science as a way of perhaps offering some evidence, if evidence is needed for that. Say a little bit more of that, because you're saying you, you knew you were spiritual when you were four, and I know you have a very spiritual background, and I may talk about that or ask you about that a little bit in a, in a few minutes. Um, but then how did you become a scientist in, 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 in physics and all those other things, quantum mechanics and things? How, how, did, how did that happen? Well, my sense is that spirituality asks one question, and science essentially asks another. Spirituality asks us why the world is as it is, who are we, where are we, why are we here, and, and science really is the how question, and science limits itself, or has limited itself, to the physical realm, and that's been in one sense very helpful, and in one, another sense very limiting, and progressively more and more limiting, because as, as Jose said, you know, our spirituality is something within us. And science is is sort of seeking to understand what's out there. Mm -hmm. And really what I feel we need is the bridge between. So that what is within is also without. And that is the case. It's just that science focuses on there and spirituality focuses in with here. So how do we bring the two together? And can the two come together? And my sense is we now have the understanding that enables that convergence of science and spirituality. And we're seeing more and more of that in the, in the market and in books and in conferences. Indeed. It's really this convergence is happening. Absolutely. Say, say a little bit. We, we commented and you commented mm. um, on the concept of walking between two worlds. Sometimes mm. people go, that's, you know, what's that about? But yet it's very grounded, especially you're being a scientist. So just talk a little yeah. bit about that and I'm going to hand it over to Jose. Okay. Well, you know, from that very early age, I, I was curious. I was curious. And if you were to ask my mum one thing, what sort of questions? It was always the why questions. It was after that was the how questions. So as I was walking between worlds, and what I mean by that 
is, is what's sometimes called now supernormal phenomena. You know, in the past we might have said paranormal or supernatural, but it's not. These phenomena, such as telepathy, remote viewing, precognition, are natural. They're a natural part of reality if we expand our perception of reality to go beyond the purely material. And so for me, it was that, that gra very groundedness because one of the things that came from those was I was getting insights and then I was able to validate those insights. I was being given messages that I was being able to validate. So for me, it was always, you know, when I took one step forward, spirit took one step to me and it's been a journey that's continued my whole life. It's as much, it's, it's an intrinsic part of who I am and how I live my life. It's, it's really interesting. The, I think Heather and I and you, as we've talked about how to have this conversation, we have in many ways faced a challenge of turning something that in many ways is very complex mm. into something that someone like myself, who is not a scientist, mm. can understand. And it seemed like consciousness was a wonderful way to begin the conversation. For example, you wrote, consciousness, consciousness is not something we have but what we and the universe indeed are. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is not something we have. Consciousness is what we and the universe are. Mm. What exactly do you mean? Well, perhaps take a step sideways on that and, 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 and look at this from a, a scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. Up until very recently, mainstream science has maintained that um, the physical world is the only reality and that the appearance, the separate appearance of the physical world is its truth. Mm -hmm. It's also maintained that our universe began 13.8 billion years ago with a big bang, which by the way wasn't big and it wasn't a bang. Instead it was an exquisitely ordered and fine-tuned big breath. But essentially from that beginning that accidental processes of evolution have brought the universe to the point where human beings have come along and somehow become self-aware and that somehow consciousness arises from our brains. And what we're now realizing from a scientific perspective across all scales of existence and, and numerous fields of research, as I write about in the Cosmic Hologram, is that notion is being turned completely upside down. Mm. So what we're realizing is that, and, and Kristen sang so beautifully about the information, and this information is the same ones and zeros, the digitized information that we use in all our information technologies. It's just that where we you know, um, use that sort of information for photography, for recording, for whatever it may be, our universe from the same ones and zeros is universal information, which we're realizing is more fundamental than energy and matter so and space-time. Literally, what, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you seem to be saying, it's, and it's almost platonic, mm. in the sense that what you seem to be saying is information... Mm is real. It isn't something it's we are... It's not exactly. It is as real. It, it basically, and I use a hyphen very clearly, mm -hmm. because we're not talking about random data here. 
Correct. We're talking about this universal ones and zeros that are actually combined in meaningful ways as the laws of physics, which enables relationships between everything in our universe, but the information is, is expressed as energy matter and space-time. So the appearance of our universe emerges from deeper non-physical realms of information, which is consciousness. Ah. Which is consciousness, because we're talking about meaning here. We're not talking about arbitrary random data. We're talking about the appearance of our universe is consciousness expressing itself informationally and in patterns and relationships that are all pervasive and enable our universe to exist and crucially to evolve as a unified entity. So that, so that consciousness, if you will, breathes itself in, as information, yes. as, as this which itself then manifests as reality. Indeed. And Indeed, in the beginning was the word. The word. A beautiful mythic it, do you know, it's, it's more than that. We now realize that in the first 380,000 years from that first moment of the big breath, space wasn't transparent. So what happened is there were sound, there were pulses of sound that actually pervaded those uh, the <laughs> earliest epochs of space. When the ancient Indian tradition talks about the Om, right. that's exactly it. And those pulses enabled slight differences to start of, of energy matter to start cluster together as stars. So literally, in the beginning was the word. And you know, back in the late 19th century, Sir James Jeans said, "Our universe is more like a great thought than a great thing." And when now the evidence now is in that indeed that is the case. That literally, as Kristen sang, you know, time is our universe thinking, space is our universe breathing. It's exactly that. Now, you, you called your book The Cosmic Hologram. Now, we were, when you're talking about this consciousness, is the consciousness the hologram? Is that what we're looking at? Or why did you, that's an interesting word, cosmic, of course, but cosmic hologram. Why did you have that be the title of your book? Because what we're discovering on a cosmological scale, and every scale from the tiniest to that fullness, is that the appearance of our universe is a holographic projection of consciousness from the boundary of what we call space. So the appearance, our 3D appearance of space is actually that holographic projection. And the patternings of this are showing up everywhere. They're showing up throughout nature. They're showing up in, in sort of through physics and biology and meteorology and, and, and all. And in 2017, cosmologists looking at this relic radiation from the early epoch of our universe, which is called the cosmic microwave background, which pervades all of space, they found the mathematical signature of the hologram in that. And so we, we, the, the evidence is, is moving forward at such a pace, and it's all in the direction that literally the way the cosmic consciousness, cosmic mind, creates or co-creates our universe is literally as a holographic projection. So for those, for those of us who are newer to this material, and for those of us at <laughs> home, uh, and for those of us sitting on the stage, uh, can you simplify Because I'm almost saying it's like a, a virtual reality, except the virtual reality is actually our reality. How does, how does it work? Maybe make, it it make works. It... Think of a hologram, yeah? 
the, the most high-definition holograms we have at the moment have a tiny little pixelation, you know, the little bits yes. that the image can be mm -hmm. broken down into. The pixelation scale of the reality of our universe is a trillion, trillion times finer than our high-definition holograms. We know that when we go down to the, the fundamental fabric of space-time, that boundary that is the, the, the sort of the holographic screen, that those bits of information are held in the tiniest of areas called Planck scale areas. And they are as tiny compared to the nucleus of an atom as the nucleus of an atom is to the entire universe. I mean, it is wow. mind boggling, but we have the evidence that that very much is, is the case. You wrote, not only have quantum and relativity theories appeared to be incompatible, but also founded on their view of energy, matter, and space-time as fundamental. 20th century science overlooked the significance of information and the inclusion of consciousness. Mm. Absolutely. And it wasn't that the, found, you know, that the pioneers, such as you know, this morning in the service, you were talking, you were quoting Albert Einstein, and Albert Einstein essentially saying the same thing that yes, I'm saying, that, you know, we have this illusion of, of, of physicality as being the only reality, and we have this illusion of separation through that physicality, when reality we're all part of one, and separation indeed is illusory, whereas reality is, is real. Um, so the point is that when 20th century science came along and it described our universe in terms of energy and matter and space-time, energy and matter is what's called quantized. It's like right. notes of music. You get the do, re, mi, fa, sol, arti, do mm -hmm. in quantum physics, but you don't get continuity. But in space-time, there is no quantization. So they didn't seem to talk to each other. It's only when we restate those laws of physics as laws of information, where information is expressed in one way as energy matter, quantized, in another way as space-time, that it's a bit like a Rubik's cube. It just goes... And, and you'll see, then you can see that they're just complementary expressions of informational reality. Then, then when you then say information, is that equivalent to saying consciousness? The way I say it, it is, because I put a little hyphen Excellent. between the in and the form. So it's not just random information, digitized information. Think of it as, as the simplest alphabet you could ever consider. Instead of 26 letters of an English alphabet, our universe makes do with two letters of its universal alphabet. But just in the way that all our information technologies take an object or a name or whatever, and, and create it as a string of ones and zeros, and then sort of recreates either a sound or an image or whatever, or a hologram, our universe takes those ones and zeros and literally, meaningfully, combines them into the laws of physics, and from those laws of physics and their relationships, creates all that we call physical reality. You know, from a star to a planet to a leaf to a snowflake. And the oneness of all of this is not uniform. I mean, that's the beauty. 
it's set up in such a way that, first of all, it enables our universe not to, just to exist, but to evolve from simplicity to complexity to ever greater levels of self-awareness. Because we can, you know, the, probably the definition of consciousness includes a, a sense of self-awareness. Right. You know, we talk about mind as, as the ground of all being, but it's the ripples in mind, it's the thoughts in mind that is the consciousness, that is the self-awareness. So our universe exists and evolves essentially as a self-aware entity, as Kristen sings, a universal. Interesting idea. What, what are some of the new big ideas about this inter- interdependence, everything's conscious? What is this everything is consciousness? I've heard of that too. Or this, I love yes. your term, microcosmic co-creators. First is that um, whilst reality is real, separation is illusion. And it's our separation and sometimes the fear-based behaviors that arise from that sense of separation and often loneliness that drive our dysfunctional behaviors. So I know we'll loop back to that later. But the evidence is now showing what spiritual traditions have always said, Mm -hmm. that everything is interconnected, intradependent, and ultimately unified. So that's the biggie. So separation is an illusion. The second one, yeah, is that mind and consciousness aren't something we have. It's literally what we and the whole world are. And we are, that, that gives meaning. You know, mainstream science until now with its version of, you know, a, a random chaotic big bang and an accidental process of biology and somehow consciousness arising from the brain has, has not just disenchanted our awareness of, 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 of reality, but disempowered us in a way. And so what this now is doing, by turning all of that on its head, I feel it's, it's helping to re-empower us and show that we and everything in existence has intrinsic meaning and intrinsic worth and intrinsic value. And we are microcosmic co-creators of our universe's not just existence, but evolutionary impulse, so exquisitely set up that I would say that our universe actually exists to evolve. So given what you've said, it's a little easier to understand how consciousness becomes in many ways in this model, not something we have, but fundamentally what we in the universe are. Consciousness brings into being that information which brings into being this cosmic hologram we call mm. the universe. Exactly. But how does that show that we are all connected? Isn't it a universe of separate beings? No, and this is where the evidence really is. I mean, part of that separation is, is an appearance. You know, we seem separate. You know, I seem separate from the chair, etc. But also the scientific methodology um, of, of exploring the how of our universe is really good at taking things apart to see what makes them literally tick. But as Deepak Chopra, as Deepak once said, that's like taking apart a radio and wondering where the music went to. <laughs> and because of the technologies we now have, we're able to delve deeper, smaller, bigger, and, and you know, realizing discoveries that are showing that separation is an illusion. Quantum physics, to work at all, Mm -hmm. quantum mechanics requires 
our universe to exist and evolve as a coherent entity. And that's the basis for things like telepathy, where within space-time, nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And that's really important. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to experience a flow of time. There would not be a, a universal causality to that evolutionary impulse of our universe. But as a whole, our universe is what's called non-locally interconnected. And again, in 2017, there was an experiment done where photons of light in the laboratory were so-called entangled, in other words, non-locally connected, right. with starlight from 600 light years away. So that's showing that this, this theoretical requirement for quantum mechanics to work of, of this non-local interconnectivity, we've now experimentally shown it as far as 600 light years from Earth. Define microcosmic. I have a bit of a challenge where I hear folks sort of say, well, you know, I am the universe. And yes, the point of a hologram is that the whole of that hologram is within every tiny part of it. So if you were to slice and dice a hologram to its pixelated scale, each pixel would actually have the whole information, the whole hologram within it. So there's a scaling Stop, stop down. there, because that's a really powerful and important idea yeah. that's ground, that your book speaks to, and I think people, I certainly missed it the first time I read your book. If we literally bring down the entire, we, if we took any person from the audience, mm -hmm. grabbed their hair, and kept bringing it down, 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 that hair into the atoms, the atoms, into, we would get to this place, to this spot, where what you found is basically, as you said, a pixel, right? That pixel would contain all the information necessary to recreate the entire universe. It's not quite as simple as taking somebody's hair and doing that. Okay. But very much, yes, that our whole universe scales up and scales down. So that's why we see the same what's called fractal patterns, right. which are geometric patterns, which are relational patterns, mm -hmm. from the very small to the very large. So, for example, we see the same fractal patterns when electrons cluster when an element changes from a metal to an insulator, they cluster in fractal patterns. We see the, exactly the same fractal patterns in clusters of galaxies. Hundreds and thousands of, well, more than hundreds of thousands, millions of light years across. So we see these same patterns. We see them, though, not just through the natural world, but we see the same patterns through human behaviours. So, for example, when we look at an ecosystem we'll see the same patternings as we see in the internet. The way that people use their mobile phones, I, I, this is a cool one. There was an analysis done of 10,000 anonymized users of cell phones over a three-month period. Mm -hmm. And of course, we use our cell phones, each of us at different times of day, different circumstances for different lengths of time. And it was shown that the, the user patterning of that cell phone usage was exactly the same fractal patterns as it is for natural systems, again, such as ecosystems. So you just kind of nicely said, oh, and that explains telepathy. Because people do get interested in that, you know, oh, you can see into the future and you can see different dimensions. Mm. Um, but you say, oh, so that just explains it. How? How? Or why? I'll, I'll, I'll probably call us back on the seeing into the future beyond a certain period of pain. But 
it goes back to what I was saying about within space-time, there is a cosmic speed limit, which we call the speed of light. And that's very, very important. The laws of physics wouldn't work without it. We would not get the flow of time without it. We would not get all our experiences without mm-hmm. it. Our universe could not evolve without it. But that's rather like saying within a soap bubble, yes? If we were to try and pass a signal within a soap bubble, it would take a period of time, yeah? But the whole soap bubble is essentially an entity. And in our universe, it's like the, the, the surface of the soap bubble, the expansion of space, is that holographic screen. Which is why, by the way, space has to expand. Because if you think of, if you think of the surface area of a soap bubble, and you try and sort of do, cover it in lots of little triangles, and you put one piece of information, one bit of information... To actually embody more information... It has to expand. Yeah, it has to expand. Because those little areas, those Planck scale areas, stay the same. So to embody and experience more information within what we call space, that surface area of space has to expand. So, so is in some ways, is it micro and macro? Yes, it is. And, and, and I really haven't answered your question about telepathy. Because, because of that, the whole of our universe, the whole soap bubble... Mm-hmm. the whole enchilada, um, is non-locally connected. It literally exists, but it evolves as a unified entity. So it knows itself. And as its microcosmic co-creators, we have access to that. And that access, that non-local access, can be telepathy, it can be remote viewing, and to a certain degree it can be precognition. Because the best sense we have of how our universe um, embodies time and time is the is the accumulation of that informational content um it's as though there's a bow wave that is going ahead so it's like there's a there's there's a, a crystallization of potential a possibility that if someone is sensitive one can tap into that crystallization and sometimes you know depending the further ahead it is because it's not deterministic it becomes less probable and it becomes more and more probable until it literally becomes the present moment. So sensitives can perhaps look a week ahead, a month ahead. I was talking with Dean Radin the other day and and his view at the moment, and we still really haven't got the evidence, is that maybe a couple of years ahead. But the experiments as he's done is showing that we all subliminally have that precognitive awareness at least a couple of seconds ahead. But it can go further than that because there is that sort of bow wave. You know what a bow wave is when you see a ship going through water? There's like this, this term, you know, turbulence ahead of it. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Hi, I'm Heather Shea, CEO and Spiritual Director here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts in New York. We'll be back with more from our very special guest, Dr. Jude Curvin, in just a minute. Please stay tuned. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to our conversation on science and spirituality. 
the three major great ideas. I understand all is consciousness. Mm -hmm. I understand all is interconnected. But I want to get back to Heather's point. Microcosmic co-creators. Because quite frankly, in many of our spiritual circles, especially those that are at the cutting edge, there's almost this idea that if you get enough people together, mm -hmm. we could conceive of a universe where pigs fly. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that's what you're saying. No, no. So how are we microcosmic co-creators, how are we co-creating the universe? Because our, well, first of all, our beliefs drive our behaviors. Excellent. So if we have a perception of reality and ourselves as being separate, we will act from that. And we can look back onto that because that's where a lot of our dysfunctional behaviors arise from. You know, the way we treat our mother earth, not as a beloved mother, but as a sort of disposable background huh? mm -hmm. to our lives. But also we know from the experiments into mind-body connection, um, maybe a few of us have heard of the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, but the placebo effect is where we have an expectation that something's going to work, a medicine, and yet it's a sugar pill. Absolutely correct. Right. And yet it has the same, in fact, our pharmaceutical companies are having real difficulties because they're now finding that when they do the ostensible double-blind testing, yep. you know, the gold standard of testing, the placebo effect outperforms the drug. So there they can't take the drug further. And I think it's getting, it seems to be getting stronger. So for me, an increase in the placebo effect suggests that we are becoming... Because it's, it even works when people are aware they're being given a sugar pill. Mm -hmm. So there's something in the way that we are waking up and we are remembering who we really are, and therefore we are becoming more aware that our thoughts and our emotions actually do have physical ramifications. One thing is I'm listening to this, and I've, I've heard you a number of times, and I'm always interested, but I'm, I'm really like, so what? What does it mean to ourselves, to each other, to humanity in general, to the planet? I think it can mean everything, actually. Because when we certainly in the West, but our, our Western perceptions are so pervasive now globally, is that mainstream science has basically told us that reality is an accident. Mm. We're accidents. And we're not just accidents, but we're separated accidents. And that is wrong. That is now being completely overturned. But the point is that it's so pervasive in our societies that, I mean, when I was very young and having these multidimensional experiences, I, it never occurred to me to share them with everybody or anybody. But I suspect if I had, I would have been told, don't be stupid, or it's your imagination, or dignity. And so our education systems, our healthcare systems are based on separation of materiality, our organizations, the way we are with each other, are all driven from our worldview. And our worldview pretty much collectively has been, um, certainly, you know, the materialistic perspective, which is where spirituality, spirituality is, is telling us, no, 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 no. Whatever that's saying, you know, within, we feel that connection. But science has done a great job, and our societies have done a very powerful job of persuading us that our spiritual gnosis, our spiritual experiences, are somehow less important and less valid. Mm -hmm. And so we behave from that place. And we behave pretty badly from that place. Well, absolutely. We, we live, I think I said this uh, today, we live in a dead chunk of rock yeah. existing in a completely cold space 
that's fundamentally the scientific perspective. That Everything has been. That has been. has been. It's all matter. It's all, we're all separate. Um, yeah. And we're sort of powerless in the universe, right? Yeah, because we're an accident. We're we an accident. Have, there's no meaning no. to our existence, And yet the paradigm you're describing is radically different. Yeah. And yet the paradigm I'm describing is what universal spiritual traditions have said yes. for many, many thousands of years. Indeed. And the paradigm I'm describing is one that is now so compellingly evidenced right. by science. And I don't just mean the physics, I mean across all scales and many, many different fields Indeed. of research. And as I mentioned, it's not just research into the, 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 the so-called natural world, but in our human behaviors, our human systems. I mean, there's one piece of, of, of evidence that I'd like to share. Please. Which is that, you know, people who study earthquakes, seismologists, mm -hmm have always wanted, of course, as we all would like, to be able to predict an earthquake. But they've realized that by analyzing thousands of earthquakes and the frequency of earthquakes against their destructive power on something called the Richter scale, which people might have heard of, is that all earthquakes cluster along a straight line. Right. And what that shows, so there's no sort of thing like a typical earthquake. You know, when we talk about our heights, mm -hmm. and if you plot everybody's heights, they'll form what's called a Gaussian curve. There'll be right. some people very small, like me and Heather, and there'll be people who are very tall. And, but most people will be somewhere in between. That isn't the case with earthquakes. With earthquakes, the only relationship between a frequency of an earthquake and its destructive power is that an earthquake that is twice as powerful is four times less likely to happen. Mm. That's what that, you know, that straight line tells us. Now, in 1948, after the Second World War, a researcher called Lewis Richardson analyzed hundreds of human conflicts from two world wars down to regional hissy fits and the rest. And he plotted those on a graph showing the frequency of conflicts against their destructive power, this time in terms of human fatalities. And he got exactly the same graph as for earthquakes. <laughs> and more recently, Neil Johnson and a team at the University of Miami have done the same for insurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan. Same thing. So what that tells us is the same patterns that play out in earthquakes and many other natural phenomena play out in human conflicts with all the reasons we go to war. Now the reason for this is that the underlying consciousness that co-creates our universal reality is, is based on what's called attractors. Complex systems are based on what's called attractors. We can collectively co-create attractors for war. We can co-create attractors for peace. Mm. That's the point. So our behaviors uh, emerge from attractor basins of the level of awareness that we have, both individually mm -hmm. and collectively. And we've been talking about the concept of fear and how much fear there is right now. Really, how that is, is creating lack of meaning, is creating a lot of problems. How does this process move us really from, from fear in, into love? Well, if you like, we can consider fear and love as the sort of extreme notes on a piano keyboard, you know? The, the, the fear is, is those lowest notes. And there's some, I mean, there's this wide range of, of, um, of evidence showing that when we move into fear, we contract. Yes. We contract. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we're, you know, if there's a tiger running at me, a bit of fear will probably be helpful. Mm -hmm. But if that fear is chronic, if that stress and that fear is chronic, then it most certainly is not helpful to, to any of our well-being. And so what we have is, is, is a sense of the more 
The more we buy in to the myth of separation, the more likely it is that we behave from fear. The more we spiritually or in any other way understand and experience connectivity, then we feel love. And love supports our well-being where fear supports our literal dis-ease. So what this does, by helping us literally remember who we really are and remember the oneness of all that is, within which oneness never bores itself by being uniform. Unity is not uniform. It's radical diversity. But with a mindset of separation, we fear diversity. Right. Where with the whole worldview of love, we welcome it, we value it. Mm -hmm. So that's, I sense, you know, when we heal, when we heal our beliefs, we heal our behaviors. Peter Russell spoke about the global brain. And as an information technologist, I see that evolving now, that the technology that we are creating is really a new level of human information sharing. And it's creating what can be called a new level of development. If you can kindly comment on what you think is happening with information technology. I'll, I'll be delighted to. We were talking earlier, because what I'm, I'm fascinated by is how the last few years, the actual technologies that are based on information, um, whether it's augmented reality, virtual realities, or indeed holograms themselves, are sort of opening up almost this precognition of the cosmic hologram as, as you know, the way in which consciousness co-creates realities. And of course, a hundred years ago, um, Théa de Chada, um, who Jean, our beloved Jean Houston, um, when she was sort of in her late teens, used to go walks with this man, this gentleman, she called Monsieur Chada, and it was Théa de Chada. Now, after the First World War, um, Théa de Chada and two colleagues came up with this concept of a newer sphere, this sense of a, a planetary consciousness. And it seems to me that what has been happening in the years between and to now is that we've moved in parallel to some degree, but more so in the technological aspect of this, to a technosphere, almost as a precursor to us expanding our awareness into a newer sphere. And for me, it's part of the potential of our conscious evolution. And the great thing about this, because when I go around and I bang on about unity and all the rest of it, I really like to stress that unity is not uniformity. It's not about losing ourself. It's about remembering who we really are, but then stepping into that radical, diverse abundance that together is, is a newer sphere. And I don't know where that's going to take us, if we make it, if we make it. But it seems to me that it's, it's the start of a whole new adventure of what it means to be human. Two questions. Is there a distinction between cosmic consciousness and collective consciousness? And the second question, if you say that cosmic consciousness evolves itself, then how does it match with the concept of God? Thank you. For me, whatever name we refer to or oneness, um, whether it is God, whether it's Allah, whether it's great mystery, whatever it may be, is, is infinite and eternal cosmic consciousness. Yeah. Cosmic mind, as Albert Einstein used to call it. And so, if we, if we think of cosmic mind, that infinite, eternal cosmic mind, as, as being an ocean, but an infinite and eternal ocean, then consciousness is like tidal movements in that ocean. And so, 
essentially universes, because I'm not considering our universe, I, I tend to say our universe, because universes, in my experience, understanding such as it is, are thought forms, finite thought forms within that infinite, eternal cosmic mind. And so our universe is exquisitely, was exquisitely, is exquisitely set up to literally exist and evolve over the last 13.8 billion years, knowing itself, becoming ever more abundantly diverse expressions of self-aware microcosmic creators within its, its story. There may be other universes that last a moment. I mean, when we go back to the first moment of space-time of our universe, 13.8 billion years ago. The laws of physics, if, if the laws of physics didn't sort of completely meld together as they do and were out by one part in a thousand trillion trillion, the universe would have sputtered and ended before it began. But it was so exquisitely set up so that from that simplest of beginnings of hydrogen, stars and galaxies and ultimately planets and people could, could form. So we are these microcosmic expressions of a finite universe and the latest cosmological support is that our universe may last for, for a few tens of billions of years. It is not an infinite universe. It began finitely, is looking to end finitely, but as a finite thought form within the infinite eternal mind of God. And so everything is God. There isn't anything that's not God. Uh, how do you personify God? I don't personify God. When you say that the cosmic mind is evolving. No, I don't say that. I say that cosmic mind is infinite and eternal. But within that infinite eternal cosmic mind of all thingness, of all oneness, there are thought forms that of themselves are universes that do exist and evolve. Just as when you got up this morning... You are living, you know, today. And you ask for the difference between cosmic consciousness and collective. I tend to describe collective consciousness as human collective consciousness. I'll expand it in my own experience to the consciousness of Gaia and all her children. And I'll expand it again to our whole universe soul's consciousness. So for me, that is collective consciousness. But cosmic consciousness isn't, and that's a finite collective consciousness within an infinity and eternal cosmic consciousness. What do we do with this? How do we educate people about this, given that science is now coming to understand this? It seems we should have a way of educating people about what this is, and with that comes a responsibility. What do we do with it? Well, first of all, my own sense is that as spiritual seekers and mystics have experienced for a very long time as, as, as indigenous folks, take these sort of experiences as, as natural is that we in our own lives naturalize these multidimensional communications and awareness via the telepathy or anything else whether it's an intuitive insight or whatever it may be and a couple of things um, act as if act as if um, hear and listen so if we do get an intuitive insight my invitation would be to act listen to it um, in other words do what it's suggesting for me such communications all my life have been incredibly benevolent but what I was guided very very early on was if such communications speak to your ego walk away 
mm. walk away. These are not to try and big us up. These are trying to help us remember who we really are, in my experience. And if a communication or, or anything else within our experience is trying to big us up or to uh, be exclusive or to speak to our ego, then that's the time I would suggest to, to step away. But generally, and in, with the thousands upon thousands of folks that I've communicated with and, and, and heard from, the vast majority of these are benevolent and supportive. Just, and, and share your stories. Is it? Share your stories. Don't, don't sort of feel that you have to prove anything. It's an invitation. It's not trying to prove to somebody that you're having these. It's just sharing between friends. I think the, I really love that question um, because even in your answer at the end, there's an implication when you say share your stories. Part of what we need to do with this, please correct me if you think mm -hmm. I'm wrong, is exactly what we're doing here at United Palace of Spiritual Arts. It's coming together as community with like-minded men and women. Yeah. And, if, and if you don't live close to United Palace, you can create your own community at home. We, you can streamline programs like this. In fact, we are online. It's the idea is to then come together in communities of men and women where you can explore this, where you can test it, if yeah. you will. Hey, this is some, an intuition I had. This is a vision That's I true. had. Where you can dialogue it with folks. Isn't that, that in, in many ways, doesn't her question speak to the deep importance of, ironically, the kind of connection we're speaking to here? Very much. And as I say, it's not an imposition. Right. It's an invitation. It's an invitation between friends and, and, and within community of, oh, that happened the other day. You know, that's, you know, for me, synchronicities are my way showers. Mm. And numerous times, you know, they've, they've pointed me in a direction. The times when I've stumbled is where I've heard an intuitive insight and not listened. Well, I think, as we were saying uh, yesterday, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And it's not seeing ask, is believing. Yeah. And people who ask me, I just say, I, you know, practice it. And I yeah. was like you. My, my mom always encouraged it. And it was always a part. It's just something everyone does. And so as we start believing it is something everyone does, we'll start practicing it more. And there, there are techniques to developing it. So would would say that as well. And, and it can get misused and abused. But overall, there, it's, it's access to the cosmic hologram. Tell us, because you're always asking about Gaia. And you were talking this morning, your sermon was on Gaia. Um, how do we heal our connection with this magnificent planet, this, this magnificent Earth Mother? And what can we do? It's very simple. We treat her like a mother. Mm. And I don't mean as a terrible teenager who treats the house like a hotel. <laughs> you know, we've done that. <laughs> it's that we, we do what indigenous folks have always done. And we are all indigenous. We are all indigenous right. to Mother Earth. Absolutely right. Um, but we treat her with honor. We treat her with reverence and respect and love and gratitude. Because as you were saying this morning... You know, everything we are, we are because of her. Amen. Absolutely right. And beyond her, Sol and Luna, you know, we, we have this incredible family, our solar family, you know. And we live on this gorgeous, beautiful planetary home, which is in some ways incredibly resilient, but in many ways incredibly fragile. And the sooner we, you know, for me, goes back to what I was saying, when we heal our beliefs, we heal our behaviors. When we heal ourselves of this mistaken perception of separation from which so much fear, so much dysfunctionality, so much um, exploitation of people and planet emerges, you know, when we can transform conflict and competition into cooperation, I talk about 
when we can, you know, transform fear into love, and when we can move ourselves from pieces to piece, it has this holonic, natural ripple effect. We heal ourselves, we heal our relationships with each other, we heal our relationship with Gaia, and we heal our relationship with all her children. And it, it is simple. It literally is as simple as that. But it requires us to literally... Uh, I think we were joking the other day about what I say to people, that we don't need gurus, we just need to grow up. And um, that's what this is all about. And we have the opportunity to do that. And if not now, when? So this new paradigm transforms our consciousness. Do you feel it, it does? I do. I think it expands and deepens it. And with that expanded, deepened consciousness, it affects my actions in the world. Yeah. Which gets get to behaviors. that brilliant last question. Absolutely. And it seems to me that naturalizing the communications with multidimensional realms, yeah, the angelic realms, the devic realms, the elemental realms of Gaia, hearing the voice of the ancestors, hearing the voices of the land, that is a vital part of healing our relationship with Gaia because we can't just sort of skate on the surface of, of the physical realm here. She is a living being. She is a conscious being. And so for us to heal our relationship with her, we have to move into that next level of conscious awareness, it seems to me. You've been to the United Palace of Spiritual Arts a number of times now. And a uh, dear friend just came in, Jen, was talking about that there's an energy here. This is a sacred site. There's, there's a connectedness here. And if you look around, for those of you who are here, those of you who have come to our website, she really is a tribute to, to Gaia. And we call her, what we do, spiritual artistry. And I know we've talked about it, but would you mind talking about that and how this place promotes spiritual artistry to you since you're here? Yes, because places have their own sort of spirit of place. You know, if we go into a cathedral, or we go into Stonehenge, or we go to uh, a, a perhaps a very beautiful site, for me, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Amen. I, I totally agree with that. But when we come together with awareness and joy and gratitude, as we do at the United Palace, then that essence, that energy remains, it resonates and it remains. So the more people come here, the more we explore here, the more spiritual artistry is embodied and, and, and played with here. The building herself resonates with that. So she becomes ever more welcoming and ever more gracious in, in, in sort of resonating with those possibilities. I keep going back to that idea of how this fundamentally impacts us. When we talk of the fact that the three major ideas are this idea of consciousness, the centrality of consciousness, mm -hmm. the connectedness of everything, and the co-creative power of the human person, mm -hmm. it's interesting to note that the existing paradigm seems to reconcile with the delusion of separateness, that our common everyday experience, in essence, sort of reconciles really well with the old destructive paradigm. That's why spirituality, that inner connectedness and that knowingness of connectivity is so important. I co-hosted an event in London back in November that Heather came over for called the Unity Conference. And we had about 200 various change makers. And in the afternoon, we had a breakout session in Westminster Abbey, as you do. And so we had about 50 folks in that breakout gathering. 
And the, the, the takeaway that somebody said, you know, based on all of this evidence of unity, was it's rational to be spiritual. Absolutely. <laughs> it's no longer a hope or an aspiration or a faith. It is rational. Right. And so this seems to me at a very pivotal time in our human story where if we don't wake up and grow up and clean up and show up, we may not survive, let alone thrive as a species. Right. Because our destructive behaviours are no longer sustainable. Gaia herself cannot sustain our dysfunctional behaviours anymore. So this isn't just a, a nice thing to wake up to. This is, you know, really whether we are going to survive and thrive as a species. And not just that, but our dysfunctional behaviours have been so problematic for Gaia and all her children that the sort of effects we've put into play, you know, could actually destroy pretty much all life on Earth. So, in essence, that really is the fundamental connection between what you've said and what you've taught us here today and spiritual artistry. Yeah, very much so. Because the way I understand it is, if we want to make this new paradigm truly real, if we want to experience it at, mm. at, a, at a level of transformative consciousness, mm. one way of doing that is connecting to that consciousness through spirituality and art. Very much so. And this convergence of science and spirituality literally transcends both. Wow. It transcends both. It's offering us this framework of the nature of reality itself where all existence has meaning and purpose, where we ourselves are part of the evolutionary urge of our universe, and where the voices of the ancestors, you know, are coming forward now because we're literally re-entering the wholeness. We are remembering and re-entering that understanding, experiencing, and embodying of unity awareness should we choose to hear and listen to that opportunity. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to learn more about the United Palace of Spiritual Arts at unitedpalace.org or come join us in the heart of Washington Heights here in New York City. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 